Welcome to the Sources of the Nile, a podcast about media, science, and water diplomacy in the Nile Basin. In this episode, we talk with Anna Kaschkau, an independent researcher from Portugal who has a long-standing experience on Nile issues, and with BBC Africa correspondent Alistair Lithed, who recently made a special virtual reality video documentary on the Nile. We explore how international observers look at the Nile and we question the pertinence of the water war frame, which is often adopted by international media when covering Nile issues. I'm your host, Emanuele Fantini from IG Delft, the Institute of Water Education in the Netherlands. Our podcast explores the role that media and scientific communication play in Nile hydropolitics. Any one of the previous episodes, Norwegian historian and filmmaker Terget Ved said that the Nile is African water by the World River. The Nile is a dream of many, a legendary river that belongs to a global imaginary and that attracts the interest of people also outside the physical boundaries of its basin. There are many ways in which you can be connected with the Nile. For instance, I am Italian and it's one Italian company, Cellini, that has been contracted by the Ethiopian government to build the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, sparking debate with Egypt and Sudan. So, which is your connection to the Nile? Let's listen to some voices of the Nile. My name is Clara. I'm Italian. I have been living in Cairo for two years, where I used to live on a houseboat on the Nile. The houseboat faced the island of Zamalek, located between downtown Cairo and Giza. Living on the River Nile meant a special connection with Cairo to me. It protected me from the sounds of the city and provided me with a sense of peace and calm, very unusual, on a city like Cairo. I'm Rosemary Nyinge from Kenya. The Nile also comes from Lake Victoria, so Kenya having a part, having Lake Victoria, is, which is part of Kenya, I'm connected to the Nile. My name is Nick Leonard and I live in Munich, Germany. My first encounter with the Nile was actually already in 2005 when I started working in South Sudan, but by then it was still part of Sudan. I remember seeing this mighty river in Juba for the first time and actually I was quite scared crossing the Nile over a bridge that looked anything but trustworthy. Today I work as a freelance editor and trainer for Media and Cooperation and Transition, MICT, and one of the publications, online and in print, we work on together with journalists from across the basin is the Niles. 
The Niles offers independent and balanced coverage of Nile Basin affairs and it's as well a platform for the coaching and professional development of journalists. In short, thanks to work, I get to see the Nile on a regular basis. If you're interested in the Nile for research, work, most probably you've met Anna Kishkao or come across her work. I talked to her in April when she joined our project workshop in Khartoum, and here's the recording of our conversation. So we are here in Khartoum with uh, Anna Kaskao, who is an independent consultant from Portugal with a lot of experience uh, in, in the Nile Basin in many different uh, Nile countries. So Anna, we listen to different voices and connections from many countries and nationalities with, with the Nile. So how did your personal connection with the Nile begin from Portugal? What drove you there, here? <laughs> here in Khartoum. Uh, well, it's not exactly a straightforward uh, uh, pathway, let's say, or a process. Uh, this was somewhere in the mid-90s when I was studying international relations and uh, the interest was basically on uh, African politics and in particular the independentist movements, rebels, secession movements, proxy wars, all these uh, very interesting political processes but that have nothing, uh, absolutely nothing to do with water. It was already later on, reading a lot of literature of, uh, about uh, Ethiopia, that uh, in, in, in my readings I, I discovered that one of the sources of the Nile was in Ethiopia. And for me that was strange, because I didn't know enough about the Nile to associate it with, uh, with Ethiopia. So this was just the beginning. Then I did the Master in African Studies in the 2001-2002, already focusing on conflict and cooperation in the Nile. And that was my first visit to the region in 2003 to, to Ethiopia, which I went to the Bruna Gorge, to Lake Tana, even to Gishabai, that is considered to be the first, first source of, the, of the, Blue, the Blue Nile. And then the second trip was already in 2005, already during my PhD, when I was doing uh, in King's College, London. And the trip was to Egypt, so that was discovering the other end of the, of the Nile. And it turned out that I was living for four years in Egypt, or almost for four years. Well, and to cut a long story short, uh, we are talking about 15, 15 years now. And uh, the Nile is not just my bread and butter, but it's also part of, uh, of my life somehow. I mean, it's not just a re the, the research part and a lot of publications, uh, but uh, perhaps I could say that even half of my uh, best or the friends are from Ethiopia and from Egypt and from Sudan. So the personal connection and the professional connection uh, come together and dominates a yeah, great part of my life. <laughs> Thank you. And um, so this episode of the podcast is about how international observers, international media um, talk about the Nile. In international media, uh, the Nile is often presented as a, as a river on the verge of a, of a water war. Eh? We often hear this on the media headlines. Recently, uh, you took the initiative to write a collective editorial by different scholars to exactly engage with this view of presenting or framing uh, Nile issues. So why 
you're not happy with uh, with that with this water war frame mm -hmm. well if if i go back even to the phd period time and we are talking about 2004 2005 and 2006 that there was a big group in the london water research group that we were saying but why are we talking about this is there any example of a water war not just the nile but in general that justifies such attention and not just media attention but uh, policy and um, academic research uh, that that you can see and you focus and say but why is that but 25 years later we are witnessing a similar trend so in the last few months i've been observing that several media and policy reports uh, talking about water conflict and uh, uh, crisis uh, you see a lot of uh, heavy charge type of uh, uh, concepts being used and then it was very interesting that back in february i was sitting in uh, a hotel somewhere in Addis Ababa because there was the celebrations of the 19 years of the NBI that's usually celebrated on the uh, NBI Nile Basin Initiative for those that do not know because now it's not in the media so often. Uh, well, it's the fifth episode of the podcast so our listeners exactly. should know. <laughs> By now they should know what the NBI is, exactly. Uh, and, and the television in one of these uh, uh, wall, uh, in one of the hotels, was passing by and say, oh, what is it? So, and it was this BBC uh, report, the 360 uh, view, which I've just watched then when I came back home, and which the first sentence is, the Nile is the world's longest river, okay, is a fact, and uh, where the world's first war over water could be fought. And I say, like, wh why? And what are we talking about? And then you watch the video and you have the impression to say that there is a lot of things missing. So this together with the observation that there were several reports uh, in the last few months about uh, water wars uh, made me think that say maybe uh, considering that this is a narrow view, is deterministic, I mean it's assuming that there will be a conflict but not looking at what are the possible causes of correlation, so we are questioning uh, why. But it was a reactive in the sense, say, why we think it's wrong, and the, the title of the of the piece itself is that why do we think that is a bad idea to bring the water wars discourse again, and we are questioning, uh, considering that this is a narrow view, is deterministic. I mean, it's assuming that there will be a conflict, but not looking at what are the possible causes of correlation. So we are questioning uh, why. But we consider that the most worrying part is that therefore we are ignoring a lot of realities that should be part of it. There is 20 years at least of cooperation in the Nile that is being completely ignored. Thank you. And um, while listening to you, I was thinking you have been involved in also uh, while you were working for CWI, Stockholm Water International Institute, you have been involved in organizing different um, trainings for journalists on for local journalists, particularly from the Eastern Nile Basin, Ethiopia, Sudan, Egypt, South Sudan. How this uh, securitization of Nile water issue affects uh, the work of local journalists? Well, uh, I, I would not like to be in the skin of <laughs> journalists uh, from, from the region because it's, it's, it's really difficult to balance, not just balance the different views of the different countries, but because it's, it's an issue that is multiple. I mean, we are talking about different sectors, 
different emotions. Uh, one of your last podcasts talk about it. So it's obvious that it's not just the journalists, but the editors, the media houses that might have somehow a limited space of how much can you cover, not just in terms of space of the article, but uh, in that media training that was organized back in 2016, one of the ideas was say, okay, what are the kinds of challenge that journalists face? And one of the recurrent uh, points that the journalists make, they say, we don't have access to data and numbers, or maybe they have access, but how can they digest it? So I think there is a big role and responsibility, not just of the decision makers, but of, of the researchers to make that bridge. So to explain difficult issues in a way that is understandable for the journalists and ultimately for the main users of the information, which are the public. The public has the right to be informed. And for that, they need someone to deliver the message. The message. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned the, the role of researchers, the importance of uh, the cruciality for journalists to get access to data and also the responsibility of the researchers to deliver and to communicate their research in an effective way. So you uh, recently edited a book with uh, Zarai Hidago and Alistair Hugh Clark on the Grand Ethiopia Renaissance Dam. And in the introduction of the book, you present um, multidisciplinary analysis of risk and opportunities of the dam for wider cooperation. So how do you think that this dam uh, is a game changer for cooperation in the, in the region? Mm. And do you consider this a good example of communication <laughs> well, uh, thanks by for, a researcher? Th thanks, yeah, thanks for mentioning uh, the book that, well, first of all, is the first book in English, at least, uh, published about the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. And I think it, it's a good tool in the sense that can be used by anyone, is still a very academic piece. I'm, I, I, I would not portray that uh, book as something that can be easily uh, uh, read by everyone. But it tackles a lot of issues because sometimes people want numbers, and I understand why. So the, 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 the book covers technical, legal, economic, uh, political, and hydropolitical uh, issues. And it's not just looking at the dam as an infrastructure, which I'm sorry to say, but it's not very interesting as a topic, but the process, how do we get here? And I think there is one word that is critical, which is change. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is not just a game changer, but is the result of changes. We are, we are in a region, well, we are because we are sitting at Khartoum, so we can say that, we are in a region that is experienced a lot of uh, changes at the economic level, at the social level, at the political level, and the, the dam, the most important is the symbolic value of it. For the first time, there is a large-scale dam in the Blue Nile River. We are talking about something very symbolic that needs to be understood by researchers, first of all, understanding what is the process, and that then the researchers should work with the media. Thank you. And maybe to conclude, how do you see your, um, your role as a international observer uh, Sometimes I really wonder, are we getting it? Do we really understand those countries? Which is our legitimacy in, in getting involved in, of course, in studying? Well, first of all, the Nile is just the river in the world that more things were published about. Every week, every day, there is something published about the Nile. I follow the media daily 
and I follow all the academic publications, and we can see that this is, this is not just a regional issue, of course. So I would not consider myself as an international observer. Well, not international and perhaps not just an observer. <laughs> uh, but I would say that what says that just the people from the region itself can understand it? Maybe an international person, because understands the culture of three different countries or ten different countries that have a more emotional distance from the topic, can understand maybe certain things that the people from the region cannot, because we have a more distance. As a friend of mine recently said, say, but we observe almost that the international people become as emotional as the ones from the region say, yes, because the Nile is fascinating. So what's the problem about it? It's a passionate topic, it's diverse. Any country that you visit is beautiful. I mean, every time that you see the Nile, you get engaged to it. Um, then, of course, I think we have a, a responsibility of, of course, one, not taking sides, and second, providing not neutrality, because as we were speaking, recently about it doesn't exist, but the fact that say, let's put as many things as possible in the analysis, because more diverse the analysis is, more we understand what is involved, better the output it is in terms of understanding what are the problems and the solutions. So I think we should be moving in a direction that we cannot forget the past, but we should be looking to the future, because ultimately we have a river that needs to be managed by millions of people and for the benefit of millions of people. So just looking at the future is possible. And we researchers have a role on that. Thank you very much, Anna, for looking at the future and for talking to My us pleasure. at the source of the night. Thank, Thank you. you very much. As a researcher who has been working and living for many years in Ethiopia, I fully sympathize with Anna's account on her connections with the Nile. You mingle with people and you create bonds with places, like river, that become part of your everyday life, blurring boundaries between what is home and what is fieldwork. You also learn how to distinguish the many shades of culture and of politics, and that's why I can easily understand the disappointment when all this variety and complexity gets reduced to the image of the next water war. So in her, her talk, Anna mentioned and also criticized the BBC 360 degree virtual reality video on the Nile. Maybe you have seen it already. So I'm very glad to continue the debate with the author of the documentary, Alistair Lithed, BBC Africa correspondent talking with us from Nairobi. Hi Alistair, thanks for joining our podcast. So for BBC you cover the whole African continent. Why did you decide to launch the Trend 60 virtual reality documentary by focusing on the Nile? And why this river is so special and relevant also for people who do not live on its bank? I think the Nile is particularly uh, interesting and important because of the, um, the regional implications of the disagreement 
between Egypt and Ethiopia in this issue. Uh, the way it's become such a, uh, a problem, I think, to be resolved between the two countries, uh, many talks going on, still no real resolution to this issue. And how that's played out in neighbouring countries where you, you have sort of stuff going on a little bit behind the scenes. I wouldn't call it a Cold War, but certainly I'd call it um, a, a tense regional situation. And that's why I think that the Nile story of the dam being built in Ethiopia, you know, the reaction in Sudan and then the reaction to it all in Egypt is a great story for, for people around the world to relate to. I think it's something that attracts people's attention when you say the Nile is this romantic idea about this great river that winds through the deserts. Uh, and I think for a, a virtual reality film, it was perfect because it was a journey, because we were going from one country to the next to the next, because there were visual experiences to have along the way, which is what you need when you're doing virtual reality. People have to understand the story, but also see things and places that they can't easily go to themselves and have experiences such as sitting in a, a balloon watching uh, Luxor Valley drift below them or, or going to a, a, on a train, um, a light uh, urban train system in Addis Ababa or have a, have a great meal in Addis Ababa. All these things people can't necessarily do. Indeed, it was a fabulous tour. You say you wouldn't call it and qualify it as a Cold War, but indeed in your documentary you frame the Nile as a basin on the verge of a, of a water war. We, uh, we have our previous speaker Anna Cascao who also challenged this idea and I also wonder if the water frame is the most appropriate to represent what is going on along the Nile between and within the different countries there are many controversies, but also attempts to cooperate. So why did you emphasize the, the water war element? I think it was asking the question, could there be a war over water on the Nile? It's something that people have talked a lot about over the years, that the next world war will be fought over water. And I, I did question whether or not that was the right way of framing it. But having spoken to um, people high up in the Ethiopian government, um, in the preparation lead up to having this idea to do the story, you know, the, 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 the rhetoric was what, what we're most afraid of is actually a war with Egypt over this issue. And having been to Egypt and seen how they didn't want us to even tell the story, didn't want us in the country doing the story, I got a, a really big sense of how seriously Egypt are taking this as well. And while the talks have been going on for a long time, and I mean, talks about talks, talks about things that might lead to information down the line as this, this whole thing is going on. And indeed, we've heard from, from leaders in Egypt who've, who've threatened war over this as well, have threatened to bomb this dam. So I don't think it's necessarily wrong to ask the question, is this where war could be? But I was very clear in the way that I took viewers on, on the journey on the river and, and on the way of, uh, of understanding the issues to sort of summarise by saying that, well, people don't think there's going to actually be war over this because there's so much to lose. I think what it does bring into focus is that, that how much of a, an important resource this is and how seriously the countries involved in this dispute are taking the argument. Thanks, Alistair. And your video was recorded in, in February. And since then, a lot has been going in terms of negotiations over the Nile and the Ethiopian dam. 
um, between Ethiopia, Egypt and, and Sudan. Right? They've been meeting regularly and also trying to find a compromise. Of course, there were stalemates, but also some significant progresses like on resuming the joint study on the impact of the dam. So how do you see this evolution? And do you think this type of cooperation can eat the headlines? I think the point is that the thing's done. That, that, that dam is across the Nile. There's no going back from that. It's not going to be undone. The only way forward for the argument, the dispute to be settled, is for negotiations to be held and for a proper dialogue to be set up between these three countries. And as you know, there's a great opportunity for cooperation between these nations, much greater cooperation uh, because of them working together with this shared resource of the, the, the waters of the Blue Nile. Um, it's always great to see the, these negotiations moving forward. The, the question is, you know, will there be another stall, as there has been at various stages along the way? I think everyone hopes not. I think people want to, to get back into a position where these talks can move forward, where it's not just about assessing what the impact's going to be or deciding which company it is that's going to provide the data to make the assessment as to what's going to happen downstream. Because by the time this process is finished, well, the dams are already beginning up and running. The reservoir is already going to be filled up. Uh, and the key question is going to be how quickly the reservoir is filled up. And, and really, you want negotiations to move a lot faster to get to a stage where you're really talking about proper how this is going to impact what, what, where and when and over what time scale. And I think we're still quite a long way away from that in terms of the progression of the negotiations. And that's got to be a priority. What I found astonishing of these, uh, these negotiations in that the representatives of national intelligence are openly and officially sitting at the, at the table. And I think that's tell a lot about the level of securitization that the issue has, has reached. So um, I was wondering, you said before, you mentioned that uh, while you were also reporting from Egypt, people didn't want to, to tell the story. So can you tell us a, a little bit more about uh, your experience in in reporting, uh, what kind of censorship or were you facing or trouble? Well, look, in, in Ethiopia, it was it was very straightforward. We had someone uh, with us to, uh, to to take us to places and to be aware of what we're doing. In Sudan, to a certain extent, there was a, there was a similar situation. Uh, Egypt was uh, was much more um, against us doing the story. Uh, we, we got our visas on arrival. We went to meet the communications department and, uh, and there was a sense that they weren't keen on us doing the story. But, um, you know, knowing that we were, we'd been and we'd spoken to ministers for water and irrigation in, in both Sudan and, and Ethiopia, I think the Egyptians realised it was, it was important to have their perspective represented. And it, it's very important to, to represent their view as well. They, they are going to be short of, of water, as the, the UN says, in the next 10 years anyway. And so when it comes to intelligence services being involved, well, of course they're going to be because uh, a dam, water security, particularly in Egypt, is an issue and is taken as an issue as national security. A threat to their water is a threat to their sovereignty. This is something that we've we've heard politicians say in Egypt many times before. And so it's not surprising that they would be involved in that way. It's a strategic asset having a dam. And so, of course, the Ethiopians are going to uh, ensure that uh, it's properly protected, that, you know, that it is a um, potentially 
could be seen as being a threat downstream if, if they were to turn off the tap, if you like, of the Blue Nile, something that they've repeatedly said that they're not going to do. Their water is simply to go through and generate hydroelectric power. There isn't even room, of course, for it to even be used for irrigation. So it's not going to have that kind of impact. That's their perspective. Um, so it's very clearly that this is a very strategic, important moment, I think, in the history of the Nile. You know, you've had for centuries, if not millennia, Egypt having the political control over the waters of the Nile, doing a deal under colonial times with Sudan um, to the exclusion of Ethiopia at the time, something that Ethiopia isn't very pleased about, of course. And you've got this sort of change, I think, as, as Ethiopia is emerging as this, this strong economy, this strong power in the region, and then actually having the, the, the resources and the will to build such a huge, expensive and strategically important structure. And, and that says a little bit, I think, perhaps about the uh, um, a power that's, that's rising and, and is now meeting Egypt in a way that hasn't happened before in the past. And so the question is, are we reaching a point where relationships, the whole power structure in the region is changing? Perhaps not yet, but you can see how it could go that way. You know, we are uh, studying and doing some content and discourse analysis of how international and local media are reporting about the Nile. And one of the preliminary findings of um, our research is that you clearly see this uh, narrative. On one side, when, it's, uh, when we talk about the Nile in Egypt, it's about history, the past, the colonial agreement, and, and so on. While when it comes to Ethiopia, it's about rising future and, and development. And I find it also in your talk. I, I don't know if you agree with this idea that Ethiopia thinks about the Nile in terms of future and Egypt rather in terms of past. Well, look at me. Look back at the um, the archive footage and the story of how the Aswan High Dam was was built, and, and it was built, you know, as Egypt was emerging from its um, colonial uh, existence into this newfound nationalism. It was a very nationalistic project. It was this is Egypt. We are doing this. This is who we are. It's finding an identity in the post-colonial world. And I think, taking the colonialism side out of it, I think what Ethiopia is going through at the moment is very much this, this pride, this idea of we are a nation going forward. We are you know, the fastest growing economy. We have um, these factories being built that are going to put hundreds of thousands of people to work. We are building these railway lines. We are a force that's moving forward. And, and the fact that, that Ethiopia is using... Um, fundraising through lotteries and and trying to give people possession of this dam, not not having this paid for by somebody else, whether it be the World Bank or a, a loan from China, but actually to to be something that they possess. I think that says a lot about where Ethiopia sees itself at the moment and how it sees itself going forward. Uh, and Egypt has always been in that strong position. It's now threatened by uh, an upstart, if you will. And it is in a position where it is going to be short of water. It is a very, very serious issue for the future of Egypt. So you can kind of see why they look back and why Ethiopia is looking forward to a certain extent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alistair. And perhaps to conclude, you interviewed also scholars and researchers in your, for your documentary. So uh, what's your tip for researchers working on the Nile in terms of pitching their research, their work to capture the attention of 
journalists like you. In terms of approaching journalists, it's about things that, that tell the, the bigger story through individuals. Like there's a really great example of someone we've studied or a certain village, a community we've studied and how they'll be impacted uh, in this sort of change that you see on the Blue Nile. Uh, that's something that journalists would, would jump upon. I think um, access to places, say, well, this is a great place to go to. You should go here, see this, do that. That's how you're, you know, you're going to be able to tell the story well. It's going to look or sound uh, or be able to allow you to present a, a great written picture of the scene very nicely. So it's kind of having those things that you know. I always say it's like what you tell someone in the pub who's not in your field at all or by the water cooler. It's like, oh, guess what? This has happened. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. Never realized that. That's the kind of thing that journalists grab hold of and use as a way into stories. Thank you very much, Alistair. Not sure whether the people listen to our podcast in the pub, but uh, indeed it was very nice to talk to you. And thanks for joining the Sources of the Night. An absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. personally liked when Alistair said that he was asking the question could there be a water war over the Nile and is this the right way of framing it and I'm glad that he emphasized that the people he met answered that they do not want this war because there's so much to lose and because there are greater opportunities of cooperation between the three countries so perhaps it is also time to start asking new questions and I think if we want to effectively challenge the water war discourse as researcher and as journalist as well, we should follow Alistair's tip and come up with individual stories of people, of places that can tell a bigger story and that can promote an alternative narrative to the water war by grabbing the attention of the general public and by eliciting emotions that are as powerful as those generated by the water war idea. We will try to do this in the next episode, promised, so that you can get good arguments on the Nile for your pub store. So stay tuned. This podcast is brought to you by the project Open Water Diplomacy, Media, Science and Transboundary Cooperation in the Nile Basin, funded by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs Global Partnership for Water and Development. You can find all our episodes on nilewaterlab.org, also on SunCloud, and since a few weeks we are on iTunes as well. listening, sharing your favorite episode and sending us your comments and feedback. Thank you because this is always very much appreciated not only by me but also by Emily Baus who edits all the episodes. And thanks to The Night Project for the music you listen in this podcast. I'm Emanuele Fantini and we have been searching for the sources of the night. <laughs>